Good evening and welcome to the 100th episode of Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. This is Brian in Buffalo, New York, U.S. of A. And with me as always is Lauren from Swansea. Hello, Brian. I can't believe we've made it to 100 episodes I, without arguing. I'm not. Well, well, fuck you, Lauren. <laughs> we could fight now. You're such an asshole. <laughs> this is why people say I'm obnoxious, Lauren. I know, right? Stop picking fights because I said we've not argued. We've literally not argued once. No, I don't think we have. No. No. Do you know why? Because <laughs> we're the ginger <laughs> twins. Yeah. So it's like you'd think, you'd think, especially in the beginning when we were doing like 50 shows a day no we were doing like three shows a week that we would have argued um actually no we did argue did we we did we had one good argument and i'm here to say ladies and gentlemen lauren was right i was wrong what when did we argue when brian couldn't tell time oh yeah when brian couldn't tell time (laughs) That was that was more of a that was we were making that was more we made fun of you for not being able to tell time. No, because remember we were arguing. It, see, this isn't th- something that didn't make the air. We started recording and we were waiting for our guest. And Lauren's like, "Are you sure it's tonight?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, it's tonight." I told him it's going to be this time. And we talked for about twenty minutes, and you kept telling me, Brian, I think you got the time wrong, Brian. And I'm like, "No, I didn't. Relax, they'll be here." And then I said, "Let me text them." Oh, Lauren. I got the yeah. time wrong. <laughs> so that never made it to air. But um, um, what was it? And there was the time you got the day wrong as well. <laughs> yeah, COVID was a bitch. <laughs> yeah, we got you got the day wrong. Remember, we thought we were recording on one day, and it's actually the next day. And I was like, I'm pretty sure you said it was tomorrow. And you're like, no. And I was like, I'm pretty sure. And then you said, yeah, I said tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah. But that was that was Susie, wasn't it? Because me and Susie were online waiting for you, and then and then it was about this time last year when we'd gone back an hour, but you hadn't yet. You know, there was also that time that uh, I got the day wrong with Doctor Chris Impey, and uh, as we were talking, waiting for him, he texted me, "So we're good for tomorrow, right?" <laughs> and I had to admit, Lauren. I made a boo-boo again. Yeah, that was what I was talking about, yeah. And then there was the time, remember, that um, one of our guests had a power cut and they couldn't tell us they couldn't get on. Yes, so that wasn't my fault. No, no. But the thing is, is we worry, like, when we can't get hold of our guests. It's not a case of, like, oh, gosh, they've not shown up. It's like, oh, my God, what's happened? And the time that um, that um, Loretta Swit um, blocked our call. <laughs> She didn't really block our call, folks. It's not like we were um, put on the no, do not she call had a spam list. Filter. She had a spam filter on her phone. Yeah, and our, our device that we record with was trying to call her, but it came up as an unknown number, so her spam blocker blocked us. But we got that all straightened out, and she came on, and all oh, the memories of 100 episodes talking to Loretta Swit. How? I mean, that was just so amazing. Oh, that was amazing. I can't believe that, you know, we've had such an amazing 18 months. 
Remember, she flirted with me. She did flirt with you. She did. She liked me. Yeah, but, you know, she better be careful because Hollywood also flirted with you. That's true. And, I mean, I am such a shy little wallflower. I don't know why I all know, these guests all flirt these with strong, me. And all these strong, independent women come on and they flirt with you. It's terrible, it's isn't awful. it? It is. It's awful. I'm, I'm put in such a, such a position that all these women yeah, flirt with me. And I never, never initiate such things. No, he never, he, no, he never does. No, and, uh, you know, our guest tonight will prove that because, you know, another one who was an unabashed flirt with me was Sarah Beth Hopton, and she's coming back on tonight. Yeah, you're very happy about that. I am. Do you know, in one, in, in our 99 episodes, and actually it's more than that, because there were some bonus episodes in there and stuff like that, our most downloaded episode of all time was when Sarah Beth Hopton was on. I think, right, that's because she makes it a part of her course and that you have to listen to it to get credit. Multiple times. Yeah. It could be. Either way, it worked. And write an essay on it. I'd like to read those essays. And see how many of them reference the bag of dildos. Or say how obnoxious Brian is. Yeah. Or how every one of them says, I wish Lauren would read me bedtime stories. They all say that. Pretty much. Speaking of that, I want to say thank you to all of our listeners around the world who've reached out to us since the show's inception and have written letters to us and and sent us notes and comments and 90% of them being pro-Lauren. 99.9% 99.9% of them have been pro Lauren. And then there was the one about Lauren having no sense of humor. <laughs> Speaking of which one, you want a joke? Go on, then. Why, why, why do bees have sticky hair? Because of the beeswax. Because they use honeycombs. <laughs> I had to throw one in just for the studio audience who um, we had to turn people away. So many people were coming in for the 100th episode. I think they thought we were giving shit away like Oprah does. Um, oh, no, God. Can you imagine? You'd have a T-shirt cannon with Pro Planet Pluto T-shirts. In there. No, I would not because you can buy those Pro Planet Pluto T-shirts at our merch store. Um, there's a link in the description of the show to our Tee Public store where you can buy Transatlantic History shirts. Uh, both of our designs, the original logo and the new one uh, that was designed by the amazing Misha Malcolm. Um, we love you, Misha. Our number one fan. Um, she designed this great logo that we use now. You can also buy Pro Planet Pluto merch. You can get t-shirts, hoodies, sweatshirts. And you know, winter's coming, folks. So you might get your sweatshirts and hoodies and stuff. Uh, what else can you get? Coffee mugs, stickers, laptop bags. I think you can get wall art if you want to hang a poster up of Pro Planet Pluto or um, onesies. Remember someone bought the onesie? We had the picture posted on our Facebook page. cute. So, Baby had a onesie. Yeah, so you could buy our merch there if you want. It helps uh, support the show. Really, very little of the money goes to us. Um, we chose the cheapest site for you people to use. Um, but great quality merch. I wear the shirts all the time. 
but uh, I went with one that gives us less profit so we could actually make the savings more to our fans because it's more about, you know, it's not financially supporting us, it's just emotionally supporting us. It keeps Brian in his pillows. The pillows that he buys of our guests. That's you know, I wish they had Transatlantic History Ramblings pillows. Oh god, she's gonna make one, aren't you? I'm too busy with my other pillows. I, uh, pillow projects, I call them. It's his new hobby. Eh. What can you do? No, I'm just kidding, Jeremy. You're the only pillow for me. I'm sorry, Rad Chad. Secretly, it's Jeremy, though, isn't it? No, because that's creepy. A Rad Chad pillow is not creepy. I don't know. I think Mrs. King would have some things to say about that. Probably. You know what else isn't creepy? Every time fucking Theo comes on this show, the fan mail comes out. He's cute. Okay. We got so many emails about, we have to ask Theo why he dumped all the girlfriends in the garbage. They were annoying him, apparently. But they just love the fact that he didn't just say, I dumped them. He dumped them. Dumped them all in the garbage. Yeah. That's what he said. I dumped them all. I dumped them in the garbage. Yeah, what a, <laughs> what a little player. He is. He's, yeah. He's so cute, though. But uh, you know what I wanted to do, Lauren, before we start the uh, the interview section of our show? Yeah. I want to I wanna reminisce a little bit about some of our favorite guests. I mean, everybody oh. who's been on the show has been wonderful, but are there any episodes that really stand out in your mind as, like, particularly special for you? Or episodes <laughs> that you think people should really go back and revisit because they were... Um, I think the Aaron Raw one was really special. That was amazing. I was a bit starstruck with that. Yeah, and that was very early in our run. That was in, I think, our first five episodes. Yeah, that was. It's kind of like, um, <laughs> it's kind of, why is this Why is this very intelligent person um, agree to be here? Um, it, the, the, the podcast has definitely gone in a way that I didn't expect it to. I thought it would just be us interviewing our friends and having fun. But it has become it has become a thing. It is, and uh, you know, I was looking back, and like I said, every guest we've had on's been wonderful. But there's certain episodes that the episode we did on Voitech the Bear is very special that, to me. We need an update on that. We need an update on that project. I think because it's a story that so few people know, and it's such mm-hmm. a heartwarming story. Um, that really stands out. Obviously, we've had so many big-name people on, but, you know, the episode we did on Ernie Kovacs, I really enjoyed because, again, it's a name you don't hear very often now, and... We need to do one on Lenny Bruce. We do. Um, You know, being such an Ernie Kovacs fan, it was personal and special to me, and, you know, the audience might not even have given a shit, because they might not have known who Ernie is, but if they learned who he was from that... They've all become fans like you did. I did become a fan, and YouTube is amazing for, you know, getting to know his work. And Alison Weir, not once, but twice. <laughs> I know, I can't believe you asked her the question that you did. Oh my god. And it is amazing, if you listen to some of the early episodes, we didn't know what we were doing. 
and it was very dry, I, <laughs> very I think bland. I was scared about annoying or upsetting people that, um, you know, and, and we'd never really worked, like we'd been friends for a while and we'd spoken on Facebook and all that, but we'd never really worked together. And it was only when we were planning the show, really, that our personalities came out and we tried some things and with each other and the medium as well because at first of all you know it was it was a case of will this work you know will skype work will people because will people accept that the quality might not be as perfect as it could be because we are you know not only are we contacting the guests through skype but we are speaking through skype as well yeah we're on opposite sides of the uh, you know the world yeah well not really but we're pretty far apart yes and we've had guests on opposite ends of the world. And uh, there's been some technical flaws, but all in all, I think it's it sounded pretty decent for what it is. Yeah. I, I like that, you know, those first few episodes, we were afraid to, like, make jokes or have fun. Yeah, we were, because we were like, oh, my God, people are going to find this awful, and we're going to get sued and arrested and... Um, banned from traveling to other countries. And then they, we, then we found out they like it. The, the, the guests like it. They have yeah. more fun. Plus, they do, and I think it's, I, I think as well is the way that we approach it is that we sort of um, you know we don't have we don't prepare questions beforehand rigidly. We have an idea of what we want to talk about and what we want to ask. But we always, you know, sort of say, is there anything that you're not able to speak about? Because I don't know if many of our listeners will know, but if you're writing a book or you have a television series or you have um, a film, you're not always able to talk about it um, because you're under contract and everything gets released, you know, at the appropriate time or when somebody tells you that you can so it's really important to us that we don't put our guests on the spot and that, you know, that they're comfortable with speaking with us. You, you know what else yeah. I found funny? What, when I reach out to a lot of guests, I explain to them that we don't do a typical interview. I mean, we do ask questions and, you know, interview format type of thing, but it is much more of a free-flowing conversation. Yes. And I explain that in the emails, and that they all respond to. And the other thing I found, and I don't know if you found this, have you joined any of those, like, Facebook groups or things for podcast platforms where other podcast hosts can get together? Um, and I think Quincy did um, hook us up with that. Yeah. yeah. And I will get messages from other podcast hosts from around the world That'll be like, oh my God, how did you get this guest? Or, oh my God, how did you get this guest? Oh my God. And I always say the same thing. I ask them. That's it. <laughs> I know. I have been surprised by some of the people that have said yes. And I know, like I said earlier, I did really think that it would be um, us just interviewing our friends. Well, we yeah. do because they've all become our friends. Oh, isn't that nice and sappy? Yeah. I mean, we've, we've had some great, um, like, uh, two too criny whiny that is amazing and the strange sessions yes and and you know and the thing is because we both come from a history background in a researching background we did have a lot of friends in the field already that are pretty big names that we were lucky enough to get 
you know, people like Paul Begg or Neil Story or Dacre Stoker. And that helps credibility. But, you know, some of the people like Lawrence Krauss, oh my God, how did you get Lawrence Krauss? Well, I asked him, what's the worst he can say? No. You know, so podcasters out there, don't be afraid to ask people to come on your show. The worst thing they can say is no. Well, that's not the worst thing they can say. They can say some pretty mean things to you. To be quite honest with you, if they don't want to do it, they, they just pretty much ignore you. Yeah, you'll either get ignored or they'll say no. But, you know what, a lot of times they say yes. You know, and we've had, we've had some guests that have had to say no that were very apologetic about saying no and have actually said, you know, contact us at a later date and see what we can do. And then six months later, I'll email them again. They'll be like, you know what, I have some free time. Let's do it. So people, that has happened. That has happened a couple of times. Yeah, so people just feel free to ask it. If you want to have either of us on as a guest, you know, no. Our time is too vis- busy and we're precious, valuable people. Yeah, yeah we're precious, busy people. <laughs> um, Quincy, that's another one. You know, it's so great to have had Quincy on. And uh, you went on and did his show. I've done his show a few times. So podcasting is wonderful. You know, when I was a kid... I wanted to be a talk show host. I don't know why. I thought it, I kind of wanted to be a game show host too. Like I used to pretend I was Bob Barker when I was five. And you might not believe that, but my mother who listens to the show can attest to the fact that I did used to run around holding, I don't know if it was a hairbrush, pretending it was a microphone, pretending to be Bob Barker. Yeah, I was a cool kid. But I never thought I'd be able to do it. Well, guess what, folks? It's 2021. You can do it. You can start your own podcast and become your own talk show host. It's out there. You can do it. And uh, it's great because you build a community of people around the world who listen. And some will love you. Some will hate you. But, you know, to us, I think we're more about we want to entertain and educate and have a good show. Whether there's a million people listening or ten people listening, I don't care as long as it's a good show. I agree. On that note, this is the last episode. No, I'm just kidding. That's news to me. <laughs> the last episode in the series. Yeah. We'll be back. <laughs> um, what a what a what a what a couple of years it's been. Um, you know, it's weird. I don't like to go back and listen to episodes because it's weird to listen to yourself. It is. It's very weird to listen to yourself. But I, but I will at times, especially if I'm like, you know, I want to relive that interview or that story. Another one of my favorites, and it's been a reoccurring theme on our show and hopefully will be again soon, when we do our exclusive groundbreaking journalism with Greg D'Alessandro in the Weekly World News. Yeah, I just like how you have to put that satire. It's the only episode because- we actually have to put a disclaimer on. But that's not because of the listeners. That's because of the places where we host the podcasts. If we didn't do it, we would. They would take it. They would take it down. <laughs> but what about you? Any other shows that really stand out to you? Um, oh goodness, there's a lot of them. The ones we've done, we've done quite a lot on spiritualism. I mean, we we had AJ uh, West on to speak about his novel that's um, spiritualism. Then we did. Houdini's Gold Detective, and then we did Houdini episodes. <laughs> Houdini is a very recurring theme. Well, he's such a fascinating character throughout history. 
And, um, you know, it's funny. We hit on that very early in our run, too. One of our first guests was the amazing Todd Robbins, the Sideshow Historian. Yeah, that was amazing. That, folks... I usually tell people, uh, don't listen to our earliest episodes because we really didn't know what we were doing, but, you know, listen to the guests. They were great. The Todd Robbins episode was so good because I don't think either of us said a word for, like, an hour of it because he is the greatest storyteller in history. And I and another, another episode we didn't say any words in was the Mr. UFO. Timothy um, Green... Episode. Beckley, thank you for bringing that up. The late Timothy Green Beckley. He's he's just gone home. I don't know. He's just gone home. He I was swear. he was a special guy. Um, crazy as a fucking loon. And we said that to his face. We're not saying bad things about him now that he's gone. Trust me, we said this right to his face, and he loved it. What I didn't know is when when Tim agreed to come on our show, and we found this out later because his co-host tim schwartz has been on a couple times and he'll be coming back soon by the way he uh told me that timothy beckley was very sick at the time he did our show and he wasn't doing many media appearances he was turning down most interviews but he came on this show because he liked the show and you would never have known how sick he was oh no he 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 was charming he was lovely uh i mean he even mentioned us in the last book he wrote before he died. The show is mentioned in the book, and that's, uh, that's flattering. That uh, I miss that guy. All the emails he would send me, Lauren. <laughs> if you think his interview was bizarre, you should have read some of his emails. Keep them. You should keep them. Oh, he was a wonderful guy. Yeah, that's, a, that's definitely an episode that stands out. Yeah. There was another episode that stood out to me more for the ramblings than for the guest. Because I think it was the first time I had you laughing so hard on the air that you couldn't breathe. <laughs> what episode? I can't remember that. When your day in history was the time the crown jewels were lost. And I had mentioned that he probably pawned them for hookers and heroin. He was taking ye old heroin. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, it's not ye old, it's the old, because it's the thorn, which is the um, substitute letter for TH, so it's the old heroin. Yeah, but uh, that stands out to me, because <laughs> that was like the point of no return. That's the moment we realized, now nah, the comedy's staying in. Because remember when we used to actually edit out when we would get goofy? You added it out. You were like, oh, no, we can't take that. We can't do that. No, no, this is unprofessional. Yeah, well, not anymore, as you can tell. <laughs> After we showed Jeremy King the snuggle pillow. <laughs> we have no, we can't return from that. The lawsuit is still pending. Yeah. <laughs> but... <laughs> oh, what a fun run it's been. Yeah, it And I can't wait for the next 100 episodes. No. You're just like, what? I didn't sign on <laughs> for all that. But in two years' time. Well, yeah. The only reason we got to uh, 100 episodes where we are now is because of the pandemic. Yeah, that was crazy. We were pumping out like four episodes a week. 
Yeah. We recorded was... three in one day once. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, but you know what I think we should do now? Our days in history? I think we should do our... Hundredth <clears throat> episode edition. <laughs> Today in history. November 2nd. 2021 Transatlantic History Rambling since its 100th episode, and no one gives a shit. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> no. Okay. Um, I do have a real day in history. You ready, Lauren? Go on, then. All right. Now, i got to preface this, because in the United States, one of the biggest sports is NASCAR racing, which I know is not big in the U.K., but auto racing is a big deal in the UK. Yes. Correct? Mm-hmm. Just not NASCAR. In America, NASCAR is huge. I don't watch it personally. It's more of a southern thing. I mean, a lot of northerners love it, but it's primarily a southern sport. But it's huge. I think it's the second most attended sport in the United States. I mean, it's big. And today in history, November 2nd, eight. 1995, the first auto race ever in America was held. And it was held in the city of Chicago, Illinois. Six cars competed on a 52-mile lakefront course. Now, Lauren, what do you think happens in a city like Chicago or Buffalo along the lake in November? It freezes. It could freeze and snow. And the world's first auto race in America... Six cars started, only two finished because of a blizzard. (laughs) But that was today in history. 1895, the first auto race in the United States of America. Mine is uh, in America. Um, Mine is from 1783. The 2nd of November, 1783. General George Washington, later first U.S. President bids farewell to his army after the American Revolutionary War. There is no truth to the rumor, however, that his parting words to them were later bitches. (laughs) Oh, they better have been. (laughs) No, I hate to break it to you, Lauren. I know that's been a lie perpetrated over the years, but Washington never said later bitches. I've seen several articles based on the fact that he said later bitches. Yeah, he didn't say that. You know what he, he said? Peace out, homies, I think. You hope. And they said, George, uh, we hate to see you go, but we love to watch you walk away. <laughs> they were looking at his butt. <laughs> and he worked that. He yeah. worked that good. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry, George Washington. We've just disrespected your memory. Well, you know, I think he's been dead a while, so. Be fine. No, George Washington's an interesting guy because he was well over six feet tall. Did you know that? No, I did not know that. Yeah. In fact, a lot of people said one of the things that was most impressive about him was his height. And, you know, over six feet tall doesn't seem like anything now. But it was a pretty big deal then. Yeah. George was a big dude. I think to this day he's the fourth or fifth tallest U.S. president ever. Who's the first? Lincoln. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Lincoln, who I believe was six foot six, and you can fact check me on this, people. Um, but I believe six foot six was Lincoln. Do you know who the second tallest president was? Barack Obama. Close. Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton at six foot four, and he was all of six foot four because I stood next to and spoke to President Clinton, and I was just a little bit taller than him. Like you couldn't even notice that I was taller. So he legitimately was six four. It wasn't like a basketball player who they add inches to to make him look more impressive. He was actually six four. When did you um, have cause to speak to the president? I have spoken to two U.S. presidents, thank you very much. Oh, fancy. Yep, Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton. I got to speak to both of them. Um, Bill Clinton I met at when Hillary Clinton was running for president. You know, she had been a senator in New York. And Bill and Hillary were doing a lot of events in New York for the campaign. And Bill Clinton was at event. It was at an event in downtown Buffalo that I went to, and I was, you know, on the rope line. Is you know they always walk and shake hands on the rope line. And this is this is an amazing story because this really shows there's a level of intelligence to a man like Bill Clinton that it's hard to put into words usually, but this story kind of explains it. At the end of a rally, a political rally, you know, the, the, they'll always walk a rope line. And there's loud music blaring and people cheering. And they're just literally walking down the line, shaking hands, smiling and nodding. So there's no way in hell they know what's going on. I mean, conversation-wise. It's just photo op type thing. And I said to my brother, that night, there was a, uh, the next, it was a Friday night. And on that Saturday night... There was a boxing match, and it was Jermaine Taylor was fighting for the middleweight title, who was from Little Rock, Arkansas, which is where the Clintons were from. And Bill Clinton had always gone to his training camp, and there was always pictures of him. So I said to my brother, if he gets near me, I'm going to ask him if Jermaine Taylor's got a shot tomorrow. (laughs) And uh, he comes walking the rope line, he's shaking hands, and when he gets to me, he shakes my hand, And I leaned in and I said, Mr. President, do you think Jermaine Taylor's got a shot tomorrow? And then he went to the next person in line, shook their hand, went to the next person in line, went to shake their hand, stopped dead, turned his head and walked right back over to me, put his hand on my shoulder and started telling me, oh, I was at his training camp and I think he's ready. He looked great. His brain was working that he heard everything said by everybody with all that going on on a rope line. And it processed, and he came back to talk about it. That's a freaky level of intelligence. That is. It it, it probably comes from having a lot of training as well and practice of it. And plus he was probably thrilled, oh my God, somebody wants to talk boxing instead of politics. This is fucking awesome. Yeah. I I, I never quite understood what would happen if Hillary did become president. Would he become the first gentleman? Yes. Because... Because Vice President Kamala Harris, you know, our Vice President now is Kamala Harris, the first time a female has held that office, and her husband is referred to as the second gentleman. No, but the thing is, is is because he is, he's already been a president and he shall forever retain the title of being Mr. President. Yes. What supersedes it? Would they be Mr. and Mrs. President? (laughs) 
Uh, technically, yes. He would still be referred to as uh, President Clinton, but I think at the time, if she were president, his official title would be First Gentleman. Because uh, I, I, I was you know, thinking, would he lose the ability to be able to be called Mr. President if that happened? Or would that like exist, but if they were in the same room to sort of distinguish between the two of them, he would be the First Gentleman? I don't know, did I ever tell you the story about the greatest sports writer in history, Burt Sugar? Um, primarily known for boxing, but also a baseball writer. He and I had become really good friends over the years through the Boxing Hall of Fame, and I got to know him and spend a lot of time with him, and he was really a mentor to me. And I, I really love Burt. I miss him terribly. But he lived, he shared a properly, property line with the Clintons. When she ran for Senate and they bought the house in New York to live in New York, they bought the property right next to his. So he shared a property line with the Clintons. And the next time I saw him after that happened, I said, Hey, Bert, how are your neighbors? And his exact words to me were, Well, she's never fucking home. (laughs) And uh, we invited him to our poker game one week. Biggest mistake I ever made. What did he win? Well, I said, why is that? And he goes, well, first off, he's got Secret Service with him, so I think they're fucking cheating for him. (laughs) (laughs) And he goes, and second off, do you know how difficult it is to say, I think you're bluffing, Mr. President? (laughs) (laughs) And then he said, uh, the only downside, he goes, actually, they were great neighbors, and Bill Clinton was a great guy. He, He said, the only downside was... Once the Clintons moved in there, every parade route in the neighborhood was rerouted to go down their street. <laughs> oh, wow. So he'd be like, I'm hungover, and a parade's going by. <laughs> every fucking parade goes by my house now. <laughs> but that was Bert. He um, famously told me that, you know, when he passed the bar in Michigan, it was the last bar he ever passed. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to do a show on him sometime with people that knew him, because he was, you know those commercials for the most interesting man in the world? None of them hold a torch to Burt Sugar. Burt Sugar led the most interesting life of anybody who ever lived, and he was the funniest guy and just the nicest guy, and I love to bring Quincy on for that show, because I introduced Quincy to him, because he was Quincy's hero, and... Quincy was, like, amazed that not only did I introduce him to his hero, he was driving around town in the backseat of a car with Bert. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we, we should really, um, wow, we've been rambling quite a bit, but, you know, it's our 100th episode, so fuck it, we can ramble all we want. But, um, got a real special guest. It is. You know who's coming on. How's my hair look? It looks fine. Does it look good? It does. Do, am I blushing? Yes. Fit the switch, <laughs> Brett. <Go on. laughs> All right, let me fire oh. up the magic interview box. It's the magic interview box. All right, and I'm going to flip the switch for our 100th guest. Lauren. Hello. I'm sorry. Lauren, guess what? It's our hundredth episode. It is. I can't believe we lasted a hundred episodes without so you, having a terrible argument or fighting. 
Uh, I did something big for 100. Oh, dear. I worry when yeah. you say that. I got the most popular guest we ever had in 100, and well, I should say in 99 episodes of the show, Sarah Beth Hopton. That's yeah. right, Lord. She's back. Fantastic. And that's why I was kind of hiding, like, you know, the date and time from you, because I, you know, thought maybe we'd have a little bit of alone time, but, uh, and, uh, but welcome, Sir Sarah Beth's back. Say hi, Lauren. Hello. Hi, everybody. How does it feel to be the most popular guest in the history of transatlantic history ramblings? Uh, well, there's a there's a lot of alliteration there. Um, I it feels really uh, good, and I'm very humbled and grateful. And uh, I I just hope I can live up to the expectations of the audience on this one. I'm not putting any pressure on you or anything, but uh, you kicked Lawrence Krauss's ass. <laughs> well, I I think that's a good thing, right? I mean, if you right. gotta have an ass kicking, it's uh, I did, and you you whooped him. All right, I love I it. Mean, everybody, you. you've taken them all down. You're the ch- you're the reigning champ. Well, I I hope this story has the same draw and appeal. Yeah, because it, Lauren, as you know, last time we talked about Mary Percy and killing mice, yeah. killing mice, killing mice. You still We're haven't got the t-shirts that made for that. You still haven't got the t-shirts made for that, and you promised. <laughs> you promised. <laughs> I, I know. And I, you guys, I got the design. Have I shown you the design for the T-shirt, Sarah Beth? Yeah, you did. I actually it was, did it was design. Great. Yeah. But um, there's the you know there might be some legal issues with me printing that shirt up, but maybe. But you know what else is interesting about this being the hundredth episode and uh, um, me being on the show again? Uh, and thank you for the invitation, by the way. Is that this is actually the week that Mary Percy committed the crimes? Well, not this week. I mean, it was a couple, like, you know, a couple of years ago this week. Well, yeah, a few years back. Did you hear that ding? Like, my phone (laughs) dinged at the perfect time. Yeah, no, you know, 1890. However, uh, yeah, it was October 25th was the beginning of of the end for uh, Phoebe Hogg and, uh, you know, Mary Percy, too. And Baby Tiggy. And Baby Tiggy, yes. Can't forget Baby Tiggy. Nope, cannot. But today we're actually going a little closer to your home. Yes. And I I don't know if, well, people can't see this because, you know, we're audio only because they'd see my blushing whenever you're around and it's just so humiliating. (laughs) It's cute. Lauren, do you think I should get a snuggle pillow? This is quite concerning that you're (laughs) collecting snuggle pillows or pictures of our guests. (laughs) Because it started off as a joke. That poor. Yeah, that's, that's. That poor man. Well, uh, you, you don't understand the snuggle pillow joke, probably. We, there's a guest who's been on our show a few times, an actor named Jeremy King. And the first time he was on, and I'm quite a big fan of Jeremy's, my Sarah, the other Sarah, yelled in from the other room, why don't you just get a damn Jeremy King snuggle pillow? So I did. <laughs> So I actually had one made, and the next time he was on, I showed him that I have the Jeremy King snuggle pillow. And now he has a restraining order against Brian. (laughs) So how creepy would it be if I had a Sarah Beth Hopton snuggle pillow? Well, I mean, yeah, it would be super creepy, but also a little bit cool. But what I I want to make sure that you do if you do this. Have you you been following the Bones, No Bones social media phenomenon? I have. Okay. So... 
he got a picture of Bones uh, put on a pillow, but the way that it is uh, built with sequins, when you rub the pillow one way, it's Bones with no bones. And then when you rub the picture the other way, it's Bones with bones. So you're gonna have to do something like that. Like I need a picture with like, you know, snarl face and me holding an ax in one hand or, you know, polite and in uh, my Sunday best dress in the other. I just want to know if the creepy outweighs the cool or the cool outweighs the creepy. You know, I think, I think that you're going to have to make that call, Brian. No, I think you're going to have to make that call. <laughs> well, I tell to you your what, attorney. You make the call and I promise I'm on the air. You have me recorded. I promise <laughs> I will not sue you. How about if I, I could get a picture, uh, I could like do a little Photoshop of you kissing Martin Fido on the cheek because you oh, love Martin Oh, I would kiss Fido. Martin Fido on both cheeks, actually. I love that man. He would, uh, I know. Him. Now, folks, I don't like to usually promote other people's podcasts, other than, of course, our sister podcasts, um, The Strange Sessions, and, of course, Old Timey Crimey, which you should all go listen to those podcasts. They're wonderful. But a few years ago, Sarah Beth was on a podcast with the great Martin Fido, and you were so adorably almost schoolgirl giddy. It was so cute. <laughs> I still get schoolgirl giddy, you know? I mean, and it's hard not to. I mean, he's such a legend in the field, but also he's just this, you know, erudite, beautifully British man, you know? I mean, he just has this I mean, he's just he's just an incredible person, and he just knows so much, you know? I could talk to him for hours. But I don't think I, I want a, a Martin Fido snuggle pillow near me. I mean, oh, he, he's uh, when the last time I saw him before he passed away was he came over to a Ripper conference and we went on a tour of um, I think I've told this story so many times. We went on a, um, a tour of a, of, of a cemetery. I can't remember which one now. And it was where George Elliott is buried. Mm. And he was talking to the guide and the guide said something about her being promiscuous. And he just went out of nowhere and went, George Elliott never had a threesome. (laughs) And I do want to tell you one quick Martin Fado story before we start talking about our topic. And this is a personal one for you because Martin was speaking at a conference in Baltimore that I was at that you were supposed to be at, but actually had to back out of because you were changing jobs that week. That's right. And Martin and I, well, we really hit it off because we could close the bar when no one else could. (laughs) And he said to me at one point, we were talking, and out of nowhere, totally off top, he goes, damn it, I wish Sarah Beth Hopton were here because her book's far more interesting than all this rubbish. Oh my gosh. I I put that on your fucking pillow, Brian. (laughs) (laughs) that's that's amazing that uh that that's the best thing i've heard all year yeah he was he was a great guy and uh he he loved you as much as we do so we miss him but uh that was so cute that podcast you are with him because you like every once in a while he would say something and you would get this teeny little mini mouse which thank you (laughs) yeah it was pretty special but he wasn't a terrible flirt. He'd have just spent all the time flirting with you if he'd have met. Oh, that's okay. Cause I would have, I would have enjoyed that. And I, I really do. I regret that I couldn't go to that Baltimore conference. I had a suspicion that it would be the last time I'd get to see him. And uh, it would have been really nice to have closed down that bar with, with you two. 
Yeah, but you know, it would have ended up with me and him fencing or, or having some kind of duel over the flirtation rights. <laughs> and I was like twice Martin's size, but he would have won because he's got that <laughs> British thing going. So yeah, it's just not right. Because all, all Brits know how to fence. It's in our blood. Yes. That's yeah. right. And flirt. I think you all are the best at flirting, frankly. We Americans were too like overt and direct. You know, you see our flirtation coming. What are you talking about? <laughs> I haven't yes. even got my doctor bag of dildos out yet. Uh, I, was, I was wondering how long I was literally timing it. And we should have taken bets before, like how long until the bag of dildos. <laughs> you never stray too far from a bag of dildos. <laughs> Well, why would you want to, you know? No, of course. Oh, and my cat just kind of looked at me like, that's just wrong. You want to say hi to Cleopatra again? Yes. Hey, kitty cat. He's my baby. Oh, that's a pretty kitty. She knows it. <laughs> She's like, get off me, dad. So oh, boring. I like your dogs, though. I um, Especially one of your dogs that has all the um, pictures. She's fantastic. Yes, Lulu Bell. Yeah, she is a hot mess. She was a rescue. Uh, she's a French bulldog, which is not a dog, by the way. If anyone tries to convince you to get a dog, don't ever get a French bulldog. They're not real dogs. Um, she is so broken, and I cannot imagine my life without her. She's had, I think she. this was her third surgery, and now she's on, since I've had her, I've only had her one year. In fact, I've had her one year today. It came up on my Facebook memories. Uh, she's she had a you'll appreciate this Brian she had a lippy vulva that was the technical term <laughs> and I had to get her a surgery uh, to stitch that in the right place um, she she had uh, I had to get her a nose job recently because uh, she couldn't breathe so we had to expand her nostrils and you know take postules off the back of her throat and such as that and now, poor thing, she is so allergic to apparently just living, apparently just breathing on the earth, that she has to have cytopoints shots every six to eight weeks. But you know what's really cool about this dog? Um, even though she's just had medical issue after medical issue, she approaches absolutely everything with just this zest and, and unabashed joy. I mean, it's, it's really, it's, it's one of those lessons that I think only animals can teach you about how we should live and exist and walk in the world. You know, she gets terribly car sick and yet she's the first one in the car. Anytime I suggest we might take a trip. <clears throat> I think it's just wonderful to, you know, to watch her live that way. She's very cool. And she's also adorable, even though she's. Oh, she is adorable. <laughs> you need to set up a, like this, you got to start like this whole social media trending thing, like bones, no bones, because she would be a star. Yeah, she would be. I got to figure out what her shtick is, but uh, but yeah, she's got a great personality and the queen uh, of rhinoplasty. I mean, yeah, I know, right? I know, I know, I know, I know. So I hate to get serious, but Lauren, check this out. We're going to be talking about something today, right from Sarah Beth's neck of the woods, and this is going to freak a lot of people out who don't know you personally. Because you sound like me. You sound like a New Yorker. Yeah. You know, you come across as like, you are from, okay, folks, you're not going to believe, you're going to think I'm lying. She's an Appalachia girl. 
You are from the land of snake handlers and moonshine. I am. And in clog dancing. Yes, and have done all three of those things, as a matter of fact. The snake handling thing. Yes, yes. We have to discuss this now. Now the sidebar. <laughs> What's the deal with the snake handling? Oh, yeah. Well, so it became... Um, it became pretty famous because there was a, a very famous um, book that was written about it. Uh, and for whatever reason, it is escaping me. I think it's like Return to Snake Mountain. I, I, I can't believe I'm blanking on this. Um, I've actually met the author who's a really interesting cat. Uh, I'll send it to you after the fact. Um, but it's just a, it's a division of or a branch of a, of a particular um religious body, a church, and they uh, handle snakes to prove their uh, religious belief and their faith in God, that God will protect them. Um, And it comes from, or at least they take that uh, initiative from a verse in the Bible that talks about, you know, having enough faith to handle uh, snakes. So that's, that's my very generous read an interpretation of that um or well, there was the great documentary from the 60s called holy yeah. ghost people yeah yeah that was a good one too that uh shows these pentecostals doing the snake handling engine mm-hmm. now why did you do it oh well i did it because um i went to a rattlesnake rodeo roundup <laughs> as you do and that's oh, what we you don't do. in new york <laughs> Right. I know my, my, my mother, if she listens to this is going to roll over uh, when you said that I sounded like a New Yorker. What's interesting though, is that my, my biological half sister who I've just recently reconnected with um, she's a, she's from Brooklyn, lives in Brooklyn, you know, uh, bred and, and raised in Brooklyn. So. She ain't um, handling snakes. No, she's not handling snakes either. And in fact, when I told her uh, where, our people were from because not only do I live in Appalachia, but our mother um, is from about three and a half hours from here, Overton, Tennessee, which is right on the Tennessee Kentucky border. So it is heart of Appalachia. Uh, Julia, my sister, said, uh, "God, is that is is Kentucky a state in the United?" Like <laughs> she's she's brilliant and she's a historian. Of course, it was a joke. But, you know, it just shows you that culturally we uh, we we definitely have a divide between us there. Well, it's also so funny because when people and we have listeners all over the world and Appalachia is kind of famous all over the world. But when people think of it, they think of that real bad draw that you can't understand. Sure. Clogged in the wild whites of uh, what was that documentary? West Virginia, the wild yeah. whites of West Virginia. Yep. You know, the clogged, and that's the image they get. And then they hear you, and it's like, oh my gosh, she's an author and a professor and a public speaker. And how is that possible that she's from Appalachia? But now we figure out you go to um, rattlesnake roundup rodeos. Um, yeah. You just you pop the bubble. We all know now. Yeah. Well, you know, I definitely was not the first. I come from a long line of literary giants, you know, Southern uh, Appalachian literary giants, but also Southern lit giants too. So, you know, we just put on that draw so that y'all think that we're stupid. Well, handling snakes is pretty stupid. <laughs> it, has, <laughs> it has its uh, its moments. I mean, I've had like, you know, non-venomous snakes and I'm okay with that. I kind of sure. like them. 
but the ones that'll bite you and kill you. No, yeah. That. Yeah. <laughs> Lauren, you want to handle snakes? No, I'm good. I have non um, non venomous ones, but yeah. But I don't know. I, I just not a rattlesnake. No, that's just no. I'm done with the moonshine. Yeah, the moonshine's pretty good. I have a little uh, stove top still. And and got into that pretty significantly during the pandemic, learning how to, uh, you know, brew my own sort of base liquor, white liquor, and then uh, distill aromatics into it or infuse it with aromatics. And I came up with a pretty good gin, actually, by the end of it. Lauren's eyes just perked up at that. Did you see that? <laughs> pretty good gin? Really? Is that your pick of poison, Lauren? Pardon? Is that your pick of poison? It is, yes. 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 Well, come to the mountains. You can have all the gin that you want. That's that's my drink too. In clog dancing. Yes. Now, is yes. this just something like are you are you born in clogs there? No, no, definitely not born in clogs. Uh so we call it contra dancing. Um, I don't know if anybody still calls it clog dancing, and there's all kinds of different uh, we in New York call it clog dancing. Okay. <laughs> Well, you'd go to a Contra dance down here and um, listen, don't knock it till you try it. It's one of the funnest things that you will ever do. I mean, I, you know, what's great about it is that you don't have to have any experience uh, having danced these dances before. All you have to be able to do is listen to the caller um, and generally contort your body into the shape of the dance move. But it's not like, you know, it's not like twerking. Like you don't have to have any real skill in dancing. Oh, then I'm out. You know, <laughs> you just, you just sort of, you know, you, you, you know, slap hands and, and do si do and, you know, run up and down the aisle and grab new partners and it's wild. It's super fun. Do you know, Lauren right now is thinking fucking Americans. <laughs> exactly what she's thinking. No way. Lauren's thinking like, man, I can't wait to get on a plane again and travel to Appalachia and hang out with Sarah Beth and clog dance while she's, you know, pouring me shots of estate gin. I mean, I'm down with going down to Appalachia and hanging out, but. Uh... Well, listen, Brian, I appreciate at least that you didn't say Appalachia. No. At least you knew how to pronounce it correctly. Well, you know, I, I've read a couple books in my day. That's true, but you're a damn Yankee, so you know we can't put it. We can't trust you on that one. No, but I'm, a, but I'm more of like the Southern Ontario, Canada Yankee. I'm like right on the Canadian border, so we're like the respectable Yankees. Okay. <laughs> and I'm of Irish descent, so you know we don't like the rest of the the, the Yankees. Mm-hmm. Well, now speaking of being of Irish descent, you know. Appalachia is known, especially this area here, for having one of the largest um, Scots-Irish populations outside of Scotland and Ireland. In fact, we have the largest Scottish games here in the country outside of Scotland. Oh, boy. Yeah. My co-author on on the book I just put out, uh, which is available on Amazon.com. No, I won't do an ad for now. But he, you know... Pushing 50, like, like, like me just got into like, you know, the whole Scottish games and caber tossing and all this shit. And like the older I get, the more I just want to sit on the couch and eat Cheetos. (laughs) And he's out like putting on a kilt, running around, throwing trees. Right. It doesn't feel good to be me. (laughs) I just feel so 
empty inside. Well, put down the bag of Cheetos, throw some trees around, see how you feel then. I'm going to cry into my Sarabeth snuggle pillow is what I'm okay. going to do. There you go. There you go. Oh, no, he's going to, he's going to, he has, I think his book is sounding too well. He has too much disposable income to create these snuggle pillows. <laughs> Next, we'll be having the John Cox snuggle pillow or the Kurt, oh, no, the Christos snuggle pillow. That's uh, possible. See, Lauren's projection. She's just mentioned all the people she has a crush on that have come on the show. <laughs> John and Kurt, she adores them. And she's like, hint, hint, wink, wink, get me a snuggle pillow. Well, you need to make it happen with all your uh, proceeds. I haven't, I haven't gotten paid yet, and that pisses me off. But that's, yeah. <laughs> I have to wait till the full year end, you know, for the whole yeah. app. But aside from from that nastiness, we're going to go on to the nastiness of Appalachia because okay. this this is a story that I was not too familiar with till very recently when I came across an article. And then I started digging through it and trying to learn everything I could. And all of a sudden I see by Sarah Beth Hopton. And I'm like, wait a second. I know Sarah Beth Hopton. <laughs> and I popped you up as that you can tell the people this is true. I said, are you the Sarah Beth Hopton who wrote about this? Yeah. And you're like, yeah, that's me. And I'm yep. like, okay, we're, we're doing a show on this. So. It goes by a few different names. Yeah. So I'll let you um, give the, the the title you want it to be known as and a little background of what the story is before we deep dive into this. Because uh, this is, folks, this is a crazy true crime story, if ever there was. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't lay any um, authorial claim to, you know, what name it should go by. I think that one of the most interesting parts about this story, and I hope we have time to get into that, is um, that this is a story that's affected a community, you know, 150 years after the fact. People, descendants of the participants in this massacre still get together. They still self-organize. They still... Um, talk about this crime. They still try to find, you know, they share new documents that have been uncovered and, you know, the bottom of, of people's basements. Um, there's still an annual Red Fox storytelling conference. You know, it, it's, it's really interesting to me. So I think that, um, you know, it's not mine to name, but what I can say is that this story goes by, um, uh, you know, the crime has been called like the massacre at the Killing Rock. Um, uh, it's been called, uh, you know, the murder on top of Pine Mountain. Um, there was a very famous uh, novel novelist um, called John Fox Jr. who took major aspects of this uh, and wrote it up into Trail of the Lonesome Pine, which was his most famous work. Um, so yeah, there's so there's been called like you know it's been called a lot of different things, but but basically the story is that. Um, in, in the summer or early summer in May of, of 1892, um, uh, there was a group of uh, people, ostensibly men, um, that murdered Ira Mullins and his family on top of Pine Mountain, which is a border pass in between Kentucky and Virginia. And this made national headline news. This was um, at a time when the reading public really clamored for stories about uh, you know, moonshiners and massacres and, you know, men behaving badly, um, or what one writer from the New York Times actually termed men gone to the bad. 
they really enjoyed, especially Northern readers. I know we were joking about that earlier, but, um, but a lot of these misperceptions about Appalachia really did originate um, from Northern writers, particularly those who were writing for the New York Times, as an example, who came into Appalachia um, and just, you know, sensationalized some of the, the, the bad behavior that was happening. Um, and what happened was, is that that sensationalization uh, sort of codified into, um, uh, into reality or mythology, and it became the trope of Appalachia. But this was a true crime. Um, there was a massacre. It did happen um, at the top of, uh, of what's now called the Killing Rock. And um, in order to kind of satisfy those middle-class appetites for stories about uh, feuds and feudists at the time, um, there was a lot of coverage about this. And, and people were, um, that were involved in the crime were kind of given these monikers, right? So Ira Mullins became bad Ira Mullins, uh, who was supposedly a famous moonshiner, even though you know, he, was pretty, he was pretty average at what he did. Uh, Marshall Benton Taylor, who was another actor, in fact, he was purported to be the primary antagonist, um, the, the, you know, the perpetrator, but also the mastermind behind the massacre. Um, he became known as the Red Fox of the Mountains and a notorious outlaw, uh, even though he was actually a really well-respected doctor for most of his career. And at certain points of his career, he was also a deputized lawman. Um, the crime was really sensationalized. It was talked about as a feud because you have to remember, like at this particular time, um, uh, T.C. Crawford had just come out with uh, what was at the time an absolute blockbuster of a book called American Vendetta, which was the story of Ansi Hatfield and the Hatfield-McCoy clash. So, you know, when the when the massacre happened um, uh, in the same year, uh, everybody, you know, wanted wanted this story, wanted the details of this story. And what's fascinating about this story is that um, details were few and far between. And they're, you know, like the Mary Percy story, it's, it's a crime that's never actually been solved, even though there was someone who was put on trial and eventually hanged um, for uh, the crime. There's, there was all kinds of forensic evidence that uh, suggested that that person was wrongfully convicted. Um, and to, to this day, you know, the descendants of both the victims and, and the perpetrators uh, claim that, that their, that their uh, ancestors, you know, were not to blame um, or were to blame. You know, it depends on whether or not you're, you're a Taylor or a Mullins. <laughs> Those were the last names of, of the, the two primary families who were involved in this case. So I'll, I'll leave it with that and, and we can kind of dig into the details from there. Yeah, it's so wild, and listeners outside of America don't understand this. Even in America, people think of it as different countries. The North and the South are different countries. Mm -hmm. And then the East Coast and the West Coast are different countries, and the people on the West Coast consider everybody in the North and South and the East Coast. So no one thinks of themselves as like each other. We're not the United States as we should be. Mm -hmm. But one thing all regions have in common is areas like Appalachia and things are always considered, because of media, a land unto itself. Mm. This mm -hmm. kind of like 
it's in the middle of this place, but it's not really the south. It's not really the north. It's like almost this land that time forgot with these people that are mountain people that are scary. So it's mm-hmm. easy to sensationalize this. Yeah. And also, you know, it, it's frontier land. I mean, even today, as developed as um, this area is, you know, there are a lot of people who still consider this uh, rugged terrain. You know, I know that when I when I ran my farm and my my parents would come up to visit me, um, you know, there was always the joke about the driveway, you know, that you had to have four wheel drive or a, or a big four by four truck to get up the driveway. And it's not untrue. I mean, this this climate, this terrain um, can be very inhospitable. And I think that uh, it's that kind of inhospitality that also, um, you know, lends itself to uh, sort of a sensationalized um, perspective of what the people are like. And, and, um, and, you know, to be fair, like you do have to have a certain amount of ruggedness um, in yourself to be able to survive in this kind of climate, you know, especially at the turn of the century. Um, yeah, I'm not making it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And let me tell you, if the zombie apocalypse happens, you want to come to Appalachia. <laughs> I would learn to eat brains. <laughs> the zombie apocalypse happened. I, yeah, I just, sure. uh, you know, I, I've never gone camping in my life. Uh-huh. Never. I've yes. never fished. I've never hunted. I've never done any of these things, and uh, and I'm I'm not ashamed of this. Yeah, you would die. You would absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. Li- I'm not living. You're going to be the first one to go. Maybe so, not the first because I'm bigger than most people, I, so I can fight <laughs> off some people. No, nah, that's why you would be the first to go because they'd think like we won't have to eat for days if we can get a hold of that guy. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thanks. There goes my chance of going on Survivor. It's not going to happen now. Lauren, I'm a loser. Well, I mean, I don't know why you'd want to go on Survivor unless you were the one on the after show making fun of them all. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't want a zombie apocalypse either. Right. Because, yeah. you know, although I like the slow zombies, I don't like fast zombies. I'm like kind of okay with Night of the Living Dead zombies, but keep the new ones away from me. Mm-hmm. Not down with it. Well, you know what's interesting in talking about these sort of constructions of people and and stereotypes and places. Uh, actually, we in Appalachia share a lot um, in common. Uh, Lauren, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot in common with folks in Wales. You know, we both have large. Uh, we come from uh, histories of coal. You know. We both have large coal mining operations and plants and and the the sort of economic disparities um, and the challenges that come with rural life uh, as compared to um, those in the cities, you know, they're different. Uh, but but it's very similar, you know, a lot of the a lot of the people. And I believe that some of the stereotypes between the Welsh and folks in Appalachia um, have some some similarity to them. I don't know, Lauren, can you speak? You can probably um, speak better. Yeah. Um, no, I agree with you. But, uh, you know, we do come from coal mining backgrounds and, um, you know, there are lots of expanses of mountains and, um, and, you know, rural areas. I mean, you know how to, like, even, you know, even though I live close to a city, I live six miles outside of a city, it's still quite a rural area where I live and, you know, 
you have cats to uh, catch the rats <laughs> because the old coal mines were abandoned and they and for years and years they were just left there so you know rats and everything would come in and and now you have houses built on them and then after a few years the houses sort of subside because they're built on old mines and everything and but no yes there is there is a lot of similarities between Wales and places like Appalachia yeah, you know, and I, I think that um, the legacies of, of extraction and the economic consequences of that, um, you know, we have old coal camps, so that, that sounds pretty similar to what you were talking about with the houses being built on top of these coal mines that, you know, start to sag and sink and are infested with rats. You know, there are lots and lots of areas that are economically depressed throughout Appalachia now because this is one of the consequences of these coal companies coming into a town, buying up the town, running the town and running the town into the ground and then abandoning it. You know, uh, I mean, where this takes place, in fact, where this murder took place or this massacre took place, um, uh, Jenkins, Kentucky is considered by uh, what we call the ARC or it's an Appalachian Regional Council. It's one of the poorest places in Appalachia still, you know, there's nothing, there's no economy there. Um, and uh, it, it's just very, it's very difficult to eke out, eke out a living. Now, this, this might be me speaking of ignorance, out of ignorance, I should say. But would you say areas like this, like coal mining communities, are almost like the gold and silver rush communities, where towns were built around these mines, and then when the mines were washed up, everyone abandoned, whereas out west, a lot of those places became ghost towns. Yeah. People rooted themselves in, in like Appalachia and stayed. So they're not ghost towns. They're just depressed areas. Is it, is it that kind of thing? It is a bit like that because I can speak from mm -hmm. a Welsh perspective. But it's like coal never sort of runs out. You don't, they don't get to the point where it runs out. But you've got to dig so deep that it becomes mm -hmm. unstable. So mm -hmm. a lot of the mines are abandoned, not because they've run out. It's because you cut if the, the you dig any deeper, you're going to cause a massive natural disaster by creating because it's because you have all these housing developers saying that they have plans of these mines and they do they have plans of these mines, but you've got to remember that the miners were underground and they can't always be accurate because of being underground as to where they were digging, so that's mm -hmm. why you have a lot of problems with houses built over collieries because you don't need you don't necessarily know if that bit had you know had been mined and because they were underground they couldn't quite tell it was so it's 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 sort of like you overuse the land you don't you overuse the land until the resources are completely gone because the resource is still there to to a certain degree but you overuse the land to where it can't be used safely anymore so that's why it becomes depressed because you've got you know all it becomes good for is is building houses on it or and the corporations don't care yeah. right and the kinds of houses that you can build on this land of course you know are only affordable to a, a certain socioeconomic demographic and uh you know it, it it just keeps people who are in poverty in poverty perpetually you know it, it's a pretty vicious cycle um, and it overburdens the land. You know, we've got huge environmental consequences of mountaintop removal. I'm sure that you do in Wales too. Yeah, we've got it's, areas it's where we, we used to have the copper factory, and one of the byproducts of smelting copper is arsenic. It, 
it naturally creates arsenic and there are areas in Swansea where you can't build houses because you can't have gardens because there's still arsenic in the ground you couldn't grow plants well, you could but you couldn't eat your vegetables if you grew your vegetables in your garden because they would kill you well wow. you know you do have you know it changes as well the way that you use the land because you use it in a way that it's not supposed to be used or right. you overuse it so it's it is damaging it's really like Sarah Beth said it you know it it creates you know a cycle of poverty that you can't get out of right right yeah so you know when we talk about these mythologies or these mythologized um characters you know we we always have to keep in mind that um like the pressures that that and the confluence of pressures that created these myths. And, and one of the things that I got me interested in this particular story was the work I wanted to do in deconstructing some of the myth to try to get at the truth of these people. You know, what were their motivations for committing this crime? Because um, it was a pretty, it was a pretty significant and heinous crime. And how difficult was that? Yeah, to commit the crime? Yeah, how difficult was that to get to get through the myths oh, as a researcher? Yeah, well, I mean, God, I'm, you know, I'm not through them. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, uh, I'm not through them. And, and the thing is, is that, you know, you have to think about capital T truth or, or, you know, lowercase t truth. I think that there are truths that we can take from this story, um, almost like, uh, you know, morals of the story. Um, but, but the truth of the story, you know, did Marshall Benton Taylor, the Red Fox of, of the Mountains, uh, did he murder Ira Mullins and his family? I don't know. You know, I'm not sure that anybody will ever know. I think the one person who might have known, um, uh, you know, died. He's, he's long since dead, right? And so what we have are uh, descendants who still gather at family reunions and they retell this story and they do share new artifacts that they've uncovered um, and, and so we inch a little bit closer to the truth of what happened, but I don't know that we'll ever really know. And it is a lot of work, you know, you have to interview. But is it also, is it also like, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no. What were you going to say? Is it also a case now that even among the research, not researchers, but the descendants and the people keeping the story alive, that it's, that it's Liberty Valence, you know, the legend has become legend. So print the legend. Right. Right. Yeah. And in fact, I think um, somewhere uh, there was a quote. Oh, I can't remember who said it, but um, it was uh, a, a producer, uh, a television producer of one kind or another from the turn of the century or maybe, you know, early 40s, 20s or 30s. And um, he said, you know, if you print the truth, if you print, if you print the legend enough, then the legend becomes the truth, something like that. And, and I think to a large degree, that's what's happened with this story yeah. and with other stories like it, you know, but just because we can't verify every single aspect um, of, of the crime or of the case, uh, it doesn't mean that, that we should abandon it um, because there's still, the story still has wisdom to share, you know, and I, and I think that that's what made me really interested in, in trying to track down um, as much of the truth as I could, but it, but to me, the more interesting part of this story is what does it mean to us today? Why are we still talking about it 150 years later? Well, absolutely. And I want to kind of start at the beginning of who was Ira Mullins? 
Yeah. And why are they significant? So Ira Mullins was um, sort of just a guy. <laughs> he was he was a younger man. Um, so this was a, this was at the time of the Civil War, right? So just to give you some context, he was uh, a couple of years old when in 1866 when the Civil War broke out. So so he came of age during the Civil War, and after the Civil War, of course. Um, these these borderlands between like Kentucky and Tennessee, for example, or Kentucky and Virginia or Kentucky and West, like they were really contested lands. Um, one of the, the things about Appalachia that's kind of interesting is that in terms of who fought on which side, there were a lot of families that had representation in both sides of the war, right? So you had some who were Confederate soldiers and some um, who were uh, Union soldiers. And uh, that, that caused a, a lot of problems, of course, in Appalachia. Appalachia was not large enough and the land here was not um, as hospitable to plantations. And so there were fewer slaves. Now it's a myth that there were no slaves in Appalachia. That is not true. Um, in fact, some of the people that are involved in this case had slaves or owned slaves rather. Um, but this was this was a borderland. It was a very contested space. Now, Ira Mullins grew up in the shadow of the Civil War, but he did not fight in the Civil War. Uh, he became um, a moonshiner uh, during the period of Reconstruction. Everybody was really struggling with um, with money, finances. They were trying to figure out what to do. Moonshine, in and of itself, was just a way for farmers to make use of spent grain right, right. so if so you if you farm if you grew a bunch of corn there's only so much corn that can be consumed by uh fattening pigs um uh or putting it up the rest of it you had to do something with it so you either took it to market and what you couldn't sell at market you turned into corn liquor because that had a cash value and that was a, a resource that was non-perishable right so ira mullins uh, married, um, married a, a girl and uh, had, a, had a family and needed some money. And so that's what he started to do uh, was run Moonshine. Um, the other person that is involved in this is um, uh, a guy by the name of um, Marshall Benton Taylor. Um, and he was called Doc Taylor by most of the people um, that knew him. Um, some people eventually called him the Red Fox of the Mountains, but Doc was a really interesting guy. Doc had fought in the Civil War. Um, in fact, he'd been, uh, he'd been wounded in the Civil War. His father also fought in the Civil War, even though there was, um, you know, a good 20 years between them. And his father actually, uh, had been taken as a prisoner of war and sent to, um, uh, a camp, um, in Chicago, which was one of the most notorious, uh, camps that there were, and at, you know the conditions were just quite terrible. But anyway, Doc um, was wounded in the war, uh, fought during the war, probably as a medic. But he was also really good at um, sharpshooting, and he was brilliant at navigating the forests. Right, so he had grown up in this area, and before he joined um, the Confederacy, he was a traveling doctor. Um, a yarb doctor is what we would call them. Uh, you know, that's sort of the Scotch, uh, the Scotch Irish um, pronunciation of that, but it, it means herb doctor, right? So H-E-R-B 
but you would spell it Y-A-R-B and, and pronounce it Yarb. Um, he would go from house to house in all of the different haulers or cabin to cabin in all the haulers. And he would, you know, birth babies and cure people of the flux, which was uh, a kind of respiratory issue um, uh, with, you know, uh, well, yeah, it was a gastrointestinal, <laughs> I'll leave it to your imagination. It was not good. <laughs> um, but it also had some respiratory uh, uh, responses too. And, um, and he was beloved, you know, I mean, he just, everybody really liked him. Uh, he had a good bedside manner. He was uh, a bit flirty. So he was good with the ladies and he just knew, you know, every mountain pass uh, for, for 400, 500 miles. So he was particularly effective in the war um, in terms of, uh, you know, leading troops to do to different places so that they could set up, you know, camps and such as that. Um, he purportedly, nobody knows this, but uh, purportedly he left the war. He, he sort of went AWOL and he had said to a friend that the reason why he had to, he had to, you know, leave the effort was um, because, you know, this just wasn't what God had intended him to do. You know, God had intended him to save people, not to murder them. And, uh, and so for a while he left the war. There was a, a, a rumor that cropped up about him that he, um, you know, defected and that he was, uh, you know, disloyal to the Confederacy and therefore, you know, this immoral, untrustworthy person. But the, the research that I've conducted shows that actually that's not true at all. He served out his term. He did take some time um, uh, and spent some time back home on the family farm with his wife and his kids. But it seems like that time might have corresponded with when he was shot. So he was probably recuperating at home, not defecting. Um, the problem with Doc Taylor is that uh, he was odd. He, he, he was an odd man. And part of his, his oddness came from the fact that he practiced um, a, a type of Christianity, a sort of Christian mysticism that was um, considered fringe at the time. Most of the folks that were here were um, Baptist. They were Protestant of one flavor or another. Many were Baptists. Some were Catholic because there was a large immigrant population here too. Uh, but he was a Swedenborgian, uh, a Swedenborgian believer. And Emanuel Swedenborg was um, uh, a philosopher, a metaphysicist, um, a thinker, a spiritual man uh, from the continent. And he was very popular with um, existential thinkers, um, but he was often misinterpreted as an occult leader. And in this region of Appalachia at the time, people believed that of, uh, of Doc Taylor. And so he kind of got this reputation for being a really good healer, but, but something of uh, a nut, you know, he was, he was a bit of a kooky nutter. And so when this crime happened, um, a lot of people immediately looked to him as a possible suspect uh, because, well, you know, just because of the way that rumor kind of works in communities and small communities, um, we always look to the to the people who um, are uh, 
non-normative, right? <laughs> As the reason for um, non-normative events to have happened. And a crime like this is certainly a non-normative event. So those are the two primary people involved in this tale. Yeah, and religious weirdness in Appalachia doesn't sound too far-fetched. <laughs> we did talk about the snake handlers. We did. Pentecostals. We did. But yeah, you're talking about a, a, um, a sect that still exists, but it is more mystic. And it's like almost a Madame Blavatsky type of philosophy and mysticism and esotericism. Right. And the name still pops up among esotericists to this day. Oh, sure. Which I find funny. But yeah, and you're dealing, like you said, a very large Irish-Scottish population. So, you know, you got a lot of Catholics. Mm-hmm. I could see people being really uh, kind of, you know, that doc's a great guy, but woohoo, he's a little cuckoo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but- and I mean, there were there were lots of um, Scots Irish, but there were also um, there was also a lot of um, mixed race people who they're they've they've sort of self named um, themselves Melungeons. And the reason that I'm, I'm struggling for the, the right way to approach this is because there's, there's quite a bit of controversy around whether or not um, the category of people that call themselves Melungeons are in fact a different race or if they are the result of um, you know, reading between races and, or if they're kind of like the descendants of a lost tribe, as it were, of uh, Portuguese sailors that you know, shipwrecked off the coast of North Carolina. It's a really interesting part of Appalachia's history. And Ira Mullins was um, thought to belong to this uh, group of people, um, the Melungeons. And what that meant is that he had darker colored skin, um, uh, very fair complected. He was uh, broad shouldered, tall, I mean, and, and had blue eyes. Like that's, that's all I can, that's really all I can say about, about Ira Mullins um, that we know for sure. Uh, and so what's interesting to me about that is that, um, you know, just as we do with many, with many people of color today, uh, the Melungeons were very much outcasts in their own right and were disparaged and were people who, you, you know, you shouldn't trust, you shouldn't do business with, um, as was Doc because, you know, he was persecuted because of his uh, religious beliefs. Um, and so these, these two men, you know, came together in, uh, were, were similar to one another in, the, in this particular way, in the way that they were considered outcasts and sort of disparaged um, and, and mocked within the community. So it's kind of interesting that they would become these antagonists too. And that's not uncommon. To this day, you have um you know for example the 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 red-headed blue-eyed mexicans sure um that are the descendants of all the irish that went over to fight on the mexican side of the war sure. they mated with the mexicans there they stayed and you still have groups of red-headed mexicans coming along that are outcasts in their own country because you're a red-headed mexican so the right. melungeons are kind of like that and, and he was one of them yeah. But was he a respected member of the community? 
Well, Doc Taylor was um, a respected member of the community. Ira Mullins, not so much. He was really considered sort of an upstart. Uh, you know, he was um, involved in shady business practices. The folks that he uh, associated with, um, you know, were, were people much like himself that were uh, involved in, you know, the illicit trade of liquor. And they, you know, they, they got into scuffles and fights protecting territory and their trade. And, and so, yeah, he wasn't really considered, um, uh, he wasn't considered well, <laughs> he wasn't considered as a, as an upstanding, uh, you know, Christian person. Um, Doc was for the most part until later on, um, in his career, Doc was absolutely considered um, an upstanding citizen, and he was he was also considered a hell of a doctor. So now let's take it to the actual event itself and what we know, or at least we think we know for sure happened. Because that's always been a bit of a controversy too. No one's really sure exactly what happened. But there's right. a couple different versions out there, and I think you've looked into it deeper than most. So what do you think, as close as you can get, actually happened? Well, I think to understand this crime, you also have to understand what happens after Doc comes back from the war. You know, everybody is, is struggling uh, during Reconstruction to figure out, you know, what they can do to make ends meet. Um, the rise of, of the moonshine trade moonshine trade is not only a response to just in it, just shocking levels of poverty, um, but it's also the illicitness of the trade is a response to the fact that, that you know, the war chest had to be uh, replenished, right, in Washington. And so Washington, um, uh, DC, of course, our, our national leaders at the time come up with the idea of taxing liquor as a way to, um, you know, add back money to the national coffers. And a lot of the, the moonshiners in this region at the time, you know, balked at that because they didn't have any money to begin with. The part of the reason why they were making moonshine was, um, you know, to make ends meet. Doc became a revenuer, um, right? So Marshall Benton Taylor was deputized as a revenuer in part because like I said earlier, he knew all of these mountain homes and haulers because he had traveled those passages um, uh, in order to get to his, his medical clients. And so um, the Internal Revenue Service uh, saw that as an asset, deputized him, gave him the uh, power and authority to go um, into the woods and find these moonshining stills and overturn them and, and you know blow them up and arrest uh, the moonshiners that were uh, illicitly making uh, moonshine. Well, um, Ira Mullins happened to be one of those people. And so while he did not go into the woods to find Ira's still, what happened was Ira and his posse or his gang came through town um, and Doc was deputized at the time. And he got word, Doc got word that Ira was coming through and there was a, a, a terrible firefight right, right in downtown. I mean, it, it was like right on the courthouse steps. I mean, 
by one, uh, by some estimates, there were 250 bullets <laughs> that were exchanged between Ira Mullins's gang and, and Doc Taylor. Um, the wagon that was carrying uh, the liquor um, uh, was blown all to hell. One of Ira Mullins's drivers was uh, killed. And there's some discrepancy about this part of the story. So in, in some circles, Ira Mullins was already a paraplegic. Um, in other circles, this was the event that uh, made Ira a paraplegic or turned him, you know, uh, caused him to become paraplegic. It's possible, either of those is possible. There seems to be more primary um, or secondary research that suggests that actually there was another shootout that Ira was involved in in North Carolina as he was running his liquor. Um, you know, up and down the circuit there. And uh, that's when he got shot by a different revenuer or a different marshal um, and, and, you know, was paralyzed from that shot. But either way, um, Ira is paralyzed, uh, his liquor is seized, his front man is murdered, and Doc Taylor is, is the one who brings that reign of terror down on, on Mullins. And so now Mullins is pissed. Right. And so that's really the beginning of the enmity between these two. Ira Mullins puts out a couple of hits on Doc's life. Uh, in one of them, he hires a guy named uh, Clifford Branham to murder Doc. Uh, he shoots into Doc's house with a, a loaded pistol into his bed through a window. Um, Doc supposedly also, you know, took hits out on Ira Mullins. There's just a lot of conjecture about who wanted whom dead and what they were willing to pay for it. But the shootout um, in the town center was a real debacle and the uh, Internal Revenue Service um, and the, the Marshal Service took away Doc's uh, deputization basically, like took away his badge, took away his gun. So he just became a regular citizen. And so now Doc has motivation to get back at Ira. You know, he's pretty upset that uh, not only has his, um, you know, his his economic engine, you know, his his personal income been affected, but Doc really liked being a marshal. Um, his quirkiness, incidentally, extended into his job as a as a marshal. Uh, he was known for being such a good tracker and being very wily in his tracking skills, such that he would take his moccasin shoes and he would wear them backwards so that uh, the, the criminals that he tracked couldn't tell whether he was coming or going after them. You know, um, and all of these stories kind of became uh, legend, right? One of the legends that, that cropped up around him because of his Swedenborgian beliefs and his connection with the occult uh, was that, you know, he'd be talking, he'd be walking by you or your wagon in one second talking to you. And then he would show up like across the mountain to catch some criminal doing some criminal thing um, as though he were like, you know, spirited across the mountain by, you know, Gabriel himself. And of course, none of this is true, but that's the way that people started to look at him. They started to look at Doc as someone who had both motivation um, to murder Ira Mullins and his family, but also uh, had these supernatural powers, you know, somebody who could 
pull off uh, a massacre at, at the scale that it, it did in fact go down on top of Pine Mountain. So they had essentially a, a gunfight at the OK Corral style shootout already. Yeah. So they're like really pissed at each other. Yeah. Yeah. And one can teleport and one is paralyzed. This doesn't right. seem like a fair right. fight at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, so to add mystery to the mystery, as it were, um, there are a couple other players that then come into, into the story uh, that are worth mentioning. Um, remember that at this time, Doc is no longer a deputy marshal, but there was this other outlaw who was uh, aligned with, he was not part of necessarily, but he was aligned with Ira Mullins's gang um, through a, a shared um, a shared friend and colleague named uh, John Wright. He was better known as Devil John Wright. Now, Devil John Wright was a uh, tall, strapping, good-looking, uh, virile man. And I say that because he fathered 32 children across like six mountaintops in his time. That is not an exaggeration. That is not an exaggeration. Yeah. Oh, but that's a hell of a habit. It's, it's a hell of a habit, right? Right. It's a hell of a habit. Um, uh, so he, he was this, this really, he was an enigma, right? He was this deputized lawman who never lost his badge, um, you know, acted very much like a Pinkerton, may have even consulted on some Pinkerton cases, uh, was involved tangentially in um, one of the bank robberies of, um, oh my God, why did I just forget the most famous bank robber of all times? Lauren, help me out. Butch Cassidy? Nope. I don't think he was real. <laughs> no. Um, uh, Jesse James? Yes, thank you. And the, I was thinking of the movie with the Robert, with the coward Robert Ford. Yes, Jesse James. So Jesse James pulled off a heist pretty near where we're where um, Pine Mountain is. And this dude, uh, Devil John Wright, had something to do with that. Um, and I'm not quite, I don't have my facts around that. So I don't wanna speculate about what his involvement was. But Devil John Wright was a really interesting character. He was always on um, the side of the law that was expedient and convenient for him. He also ran moonshine, uh, but he, um, but he came down on people who uh, beat women and uh, were involved in the KKK. Those were two sort of hard lines that he just would not cross. And, and he, um, you know, he, he definitely punished people uh, if they did that. All of that to say, you know, his best friend was a guy named Talt Hall. Bad Talt Hall was his nickname. And Devil John and, and Talt were really more like brothers. Um, Talt was a pretty bad dude and, and Devil John covered up out of his love for, for his, uh, for his brother friend, he covered up a lot of, of Talt's worst behaviors. Um, Talt murdered people. In fact, one of the things that he did, uh, was he murdered one of the sheriffs, um, in an adjoining town, uh, Enos Hilton was that sheriff's name. And after he murdered Enos Hilton, he had to, he had to leave town and John Wright, uh, helped him do that. So he goes down to Memphis 
And, um, you know, there are lots and lots of people who would love to find Talt Hall, capture Talt Hall. Every time he's brought back to uh, Letcher County and brought before a judge, you know, things bad happen, right? The judge mysteriously can't make it to court. Uh, people die. People are intimidated. And the whole county, the whole region just sort of believes that Talt Hall is never going to be caught or punished for killing the sheriff Enos Hilton or any of the other people that he's killed. I mean, at one point, Tot Hall, you know, spouted off at the mouth to, to a reporter for the New York Times that he'd killed 99 men. It was probably closer to like 12 or 15, but the guy was a bad dude. Well, you're a pretty bad dude, yeah. Yeah, he was a pretty bad dude. Well, Marshall Benton Taylor, Doc Taylor, in trying to uh, reclaim some dignity and, and regain some trust in the community and to, you know, unsully his name and reputation, decides to go down to Memphis, Tennessee. He tracks Talt Hall all the way to Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, he sets up an elaborate plot to catch him, catches him, brings him back to Letcher County, uh, makes sure that he gets off of the train without being um, lynched by the townspeople who are excited, but also, you know, terrified that he won't be held to account gets him in jail and then watches him, uh, guards him as a guard with several other guards until Talt Hall is in fact brought up for trial, uh, found guilty, convicted, and sentenced to hang. All right, so that's Talt Hall and Doc Taylor's relationship. Um, at this time, Devil John is basically the sheriff of this area. Uh, Doc Taylor, Ira Mullins have their shootout. Doc Taylor loses his uh, policing license, essentially, his marshal badge. Um, they have enmity between each other. And then in May of, of uh, 1892, Ira Mullins and his family are bringing a load of moonshine up over Pine Mountain. And what we now know was three people, three men, ambushed the family at the top of Pine Mountain, murdered Ira, murdered his wife, Lorenza, um, and several other people in the party. In fact, there were only two survivors of the party. Uh, one was um, the son uh, of uh, one of the other murdered couples. Um, I believe his name was Greenberry Harris. And he was so scuffed up and, and sort of escaped by the hair of his chinny chin chin such that uh, a bullet had actually pierced his um, overall suspender. <laughs> but he managed to get away, right? But this was, this was a really, really hell of a big firefight that happened. The other uh, victim that survived the shooting um, was... Uh, the sister, Ira Mullins' sister, and, and uh, she survived, uh, Jane Mullins, and she went on to testify in court that she believed that Doc Taylor was at the crime and had perpetrated the crime and, you know, had, had riddled the body with bullets, along with two other men called the Fleming Boys, who are incidental to the story, really. Um, Ira Mullins uh, was infringing upon 
uh, Talt Hall and Devil John Wright's Moonshining Territory. So it wasn't like it was in their best interest for for uh, Ira Mullins to be, you know, dispatched. Um, but there was a lot of bad blood between uh, Doc Taylor and Devil John because Doc Taylor went to Memphis and got Talt Hall. So it was also in Devil John's interest to make sure that Doc Taylor went down for the crime. And there may have been, there's some, there's some evidence that there was evidence tampering of one of the Winchester rifles that was used to kill Ira Mullins and his family. Um, and there was a lot of court testimony about how Doc Taylor had, you know, really lost his mind and was, and was, you know, capable of, of committing such a crime and also had lots of motive to commit this crime. And so now you kind of see like this really weird trifecta, you know, of motive and opportunity between these three factions. Um, yeah. And that's where the mystery comes in, you know? Yeah, because just as someone who hasn't seen any of the evidence, it sounds a lot more like, you know, Hall and the devil were yeah. killing these guys for infringing on their things and framing the doc. Yeah. But at the same point, Doc's already had a giant OK Corral type shootout, so he's not above it. So that's right. uh, just, it's insane. I mean, and this is the kind of thing that if this was in the West, this would have been made in a movie several years ago as an old West legend. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. The fact that it happened in Appalachia instead of, instead of, in, instead of, you know, Carson city is right. the only reason that it's not. And that's right. just baffling. Yeah. Well, when the book comes out, I'm hoping that we will get some <laughs> movie options on it. I was going to say, <laughs> I want to. I want to get in on this this deal from the get go. If you need any co authors or anything, because this is ready made for a movie. Oh, it is. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. So I don't want to spoil what you're, you're going to put in your book, but um, have you attended any of these family reunions or gatherings that these uh, that the descendants have? I have. In fact, um, until COVID, I attended every year. Um, and I've become quite close with several of the uh, family members of both, you know, the Mullins family, as well as the Taylors, um, uh, as well as the Wrights, you know, having 32 kids gives you a lot of descendants. So I was going to say, there's plenty of them right. around. <laughs> Running around out there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've actually felt very um, included in these uh, storytelling conferences and family reunions, and it's been it's been really beautiful to uh, to develop relationships with these family members such that they trust me enough to give me these um, family documents that are deeply meaningful to them. You know, I've touched one of Doc Taylor's Bibles because, in addition to being a doctor and a lawman, uh, he was also a traveling preacher. You know, he preached his Swedenborgan mysticism. Um, that's, that's just exceptional to me. You know, I've, I've been in the uh, Museum of Southwest Virginia history. I've seen, Doc had this long sort of uh, telescope that he would use to 
if he was sitting up on top of one mountain, he'd extend it. Uh, some people say it was five feet long. I, I don't know. I haven't seen it extended, but it was a few feet long. And he could see the smoke from the stills on the other mountaintops kind of rising above the ridgelines. And that's why would he, he need that if hmm? he could teleport? Oh, right. I know. Exactly. Right. Why would you need that if you're carried on the wings of angels? <laughs> Because he's not allowed to tell people that he's carried on the wings of angels. He's got to keep it quiet. Right, right. Yeah, he's got to be on the down low. That's right. That's right. Well, we know who didn't keep it on the down low, Mr. 32 Kids. Yes, no, he did not. What do his descendants think of his um, his reputation, not only as, you know, quite the ladies' man, but as a cold-blooded killer? I mean, what kind of... Well... Yeah. So Devil John Wright um, was not uh, ever considered a cold-blooded killer, I don't think, and certainly isn't by his, by his uh, descendants. He may have orchestrated, um, he may have orchestrated this, and he, he may have orchestrated Doc Taylor's um, conviction. There's some evidence to suggest that he did. Uh, as retribution for Doc, uh, you know, imprisoning his best friend, Talt Hall. Talt Hall was eventually executed for his crime of killing Sheriff Enos Hilton. And there is some legend in the Taylor side or on the Taylor side of the family that during Doc Taylor's trial, uh, he couldn't have been atop Pine Mountain because he was delivering a baby and that the woman whose baby he was delivering at the time the massacre happened was traveling into town to testify on Doc's behalf and that it was Devil John Wright who met her um, at the pass before, you know, coming into town to the courthouse and basically turned her around so that she couldn't testify. And that that, that testimony would have, not certainly, but it would have gone a long way to um, certifying Doc's uh, innocence. And so that's what Devil John did. You know, he wasn't he wasn't the one pulling the trigger, but he perhaps created the conditions for um, uh, a revenge strategy that, you know, resulted in Doc Taylor's execution. And it did. He was, you know, he was hung by the neck until dead. And. What about the uh, the Mullins descendants? What do they think about you um, wanting to, you know, write a book about this? How do they how do they feel about the legacy of their of their ancestor and how they'll be portrayed? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's been enough distance that you know when we're talking about John Wright and his. Uh, uh, virility. Everybody sort of laughs and chuckles and, and thinks that's funny. Um, and, you know, to some degree, it is funny. I think it's also worth noting, um, you know, none of these men, humans are never all good or all bad, right? And so none of these men uh, are all good or all bad, have all good or all bad motivations. Um, Devil John Wright in particular walked this really interesting line where, yes, he bedded, um, he bedded multiple women and had 32 children between them. Like you uh, do. Right, like you do. But actually, 
yes, like you do at the end of the Civil War, it was not an uncommon practice, in fact, for um, you know, the brothers of, of uh, those who died during the Civil War to come back and remarry um, you know, what would have been their sister-in-law. It wasn't uncommon for men to have multiple wives on different mountaintops um, because there weren't enough men to go around. And a lot of women were left with both children and also farms that they had to attend by themselves. And life in this region, of course, uh, at that time was even harder than it is now by a long stretch. So it's not, you know, we have to understand that what might look to us as immoral and, you know, bizarre uh, from our moment in history, in fact, had some historical precedent uh, and purpose. You know, John Wright uh, was a, was from all stories, uh, very, very good to his wives or his lovers, um, and very, very good to his children, ensuring that they were educated, even the girls, you know, that they were educated, that they had enough to eat, that they weren't, you know, shoeless, they had clothes. Um, so I think that that, you know, we need to keep that in mind when we think about, yeah, he, he sired 32 children, you know, what a, what a, I don't know, what would we call a man whore? <laughs> I, I just look at it that, if he made sure they all had shoes, that's 64 shoes, okay? <laughs> that's like enough to make a Melda Marcos blush. Right, 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 right. Yeah, it was a lot of shoes. So in, in answer to your question, you know. I mean, that's. Yeah, it's a lot of shoes. The Mullins family members, you know, they, they certainly think about their ancestors with, um, uh, you know, with some reverence, like they were victims of this crime. They were very brutally gunned down and murdered. And I mean, they weren't just murdered, but but both uh, both Ira and Lorenza, his wife's body, bodies were desecrated. You know, he had something like 15 bullet uh, bullets in him, shot through him. And Lorenza uh, had a money belt that was cut off of her. And by some reports, um, she had her breasts cut off. You know, so her body was desecrated too. Now we cannot confirm that that actually happened. The the sources aren't there to confirm that, um, but there's there's more than one source that suggests that that's what happened. Um, so I think the Mullins family, in talking with me, they've wanted to make sure that I help people see their ancestors as the victims that they were, even though they aren't just victims either, right? I, they're fully aware that Ira Mullins did some bad shit, but they're also aware and want other people to remember that 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 did not justify that they died. And it certainly didn't justify the way in which they died. No, I mean, Ira Mullins had been in a few shootouts before, obviously he was paralyzed in one of the two. Right. And that's who's to say those are the only two shootouts he was involved in he was a moonshiner but that's you know that's a crime that i don't want to harp on because like you said that's how people would survive yeah but he was not above being in shootouts and 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 running these things and and really even more heinous than being a moonshiner infringing on other people's territory moonshining that's bad for the time Sure. But if you have 15 bullets or so riddled in the body of a man who's paralyzed, so he obviously wasn't running away, 
Right. It sounds like it was a personal hit. Absolutely. That was not just he got hit in the crossfire. That was someone right. up at him. Yeah. And, you know, to that point, I think it's a really good point. Um, the Taylor family members um, who have been the most forthcoming with me uh, and have shared the most uh, primary documentation with me, um, especially one descendant uh, whose name is Judy Bach. She is just a lovely human being. You know, the Taylors want to know the truth. They all have their own opinions about what that truth is. And if the truth exonerates Doc, as many of them believe that um, uh, more evidence will eventually, then that's the story that they want told, right? Because it's, it is a difficult legacy. Uh, it, is a, it is a heavy burden as a descendant to carry that your ancestor was responsible for such a heinous crime. And so in my research, one of the things that they've really um, pressed or asked of me is, you know, whatever you find, please share. We'll share whatever we find, but just help us get to the bottom of it because we don't think Doc did it. And, and we want other people to, to stop spreading this, uh, you know, rumor about him. And I think that's so interesting that people are still concerned about that, you know, 150 years later. Well, I would be. Sure. Um, I definitely would be. Um, and it's not out of a sense of ego and pride about my family name, but maybe it's because I'm, I'm sympathetic to things like that. It would weigh on my conscience that someone in my lineage had done this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, and I know we've talked way over time because you're so busy and I'm so needy with my time with you, but for a book, for a project like this, and let's take it a step farther and say, you know, down the road, someone does want to make a movie of this or, or a Netflix series or whatever. Mm-hmm. One of the obstacles I could see, even in the, in the book aspect, who's your focusing the story on? You still need a protagonist and an antagonist mm-hmm. or someone the audience sympathizes with, whether it be an antihero. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the audience can sympathize with an antihero. But when you approach this, whose perspective do you think, as a historian, it should almost be told through the lens of? Well, one of the things that I played with in the beginning, an idea that I've been playing with, um, I think that the heroes of this story, that the protagonists of this story are the women, to be very honest. I think that- Ah, I like that. Yeah, it's the women, it's the wives. You know, Nancy Booth Taylor, Doc Taylor's wife, um, is a fascinating character. She- loved that man until the day that he died uh, or was executed rather, even though he had left her about 10 years before all of this happened. He had children by her and then he had left her and taken up with another woman um, and had children by that woman as well. But on on the day of his execution, it was Nancy that he called to his side. It was Nancy that he took his final communion with. It was Nancy that you know looked at him as that drop, uh, as he took that drop um, in the execution shed. 
So I think that her strength, her resilience, uh, the fact that she wrote letters, lots and lots of letters after his death to family members, you know, to their son, Sylvan Taylor. Um, I think that that makes her a really credible and interesting character. And I think that the other women who are associated with these men are absolutely fascinating uh, and would be really good protagonists. The difficulty, of course, is that we don't have enough primary evidence to make any one of them a real protagonist of the story. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I don't, I don't know. This is definitely an anti, an anti-hero story, uh, an anti-hero story, but God, you've got so many good characters. It'd be hard to, to choose between them. Well, that's why it almost looks like it would be better as a series where each series episode can focus on one of the people and then the story, you know, or even as a book standpoint, you know, one chapter is about these people, one chapter is about these people, one chapter is about these people. Then they intertwine into a chapter and mm-hmm. let the audience decide who they want to back. Yeah, yeah. Fuck that. We, we should yeah, let yeah, them yeah. decide. The audience should be forced to think in these situations. I, I, the way that I think it's very different, difficult to do a novel or a book from different perspectives. If it is, if you're going down the way of a novel, I would say each chapter is a short story mm. from the different perspective because doing a multi-perspective novel is one of the most difficult things in the world. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Well, and you know, I my specialty is uh, nonfiction. I don't feel that I have the capacity to write a fictionalized version um, of this just because I'm so committed to the truth or, or finding as much of the truth as I can. Um, I feel like I owe that to the descendants of this. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Which then complicates it even more, you know, um, because there is no obvious good guy and bad guy. I don't think you story. need to. I, I think with nonfiction, you don't need an antagonist or a protagonist. You just need the story. Hmm. That's that's the best thing. Or even um, with nonfiction, it could be the descendants that are driving it. Like this is for them. Yeah. This is something that they want everybody to know, and this is yeah. you know the complicated complicated matter of it. Right. And I think that that could be the, like the driving force behind it because. But I think because the story is so complicated that nonfiction is the only way to do it justice. I don't think that, you know, multi-perspective chapter or anything would, would, it wouldn't, I think you, I think there's a possibility of losing something that way. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But I think if you. It's such a, didn't I tell you it was a crazy story, Lauren? You did say it was a crazy story. And, and, um, but I, I, I think that it, it's something that, you know, that that the story itself is its own antagonist and, and you know, antagonist. Hmm. That is it, you know, that the story is, it's a, it's a story of people who survived the Civil War, which was one of the most horrific wars ever. Yeah. I mean, no war is great, but... I mean, you hear the stories and, you know, even now today in places like Gettysburg, if it rains too hard or, you know, there's land shifts, you still, you know, people still finding dead bodies. Right. You know, so it's still something that is very. Yeah, and actually that's, you know. Yeah, that's yeah, something that the, still, the, it's, it's still a story that is still relevant because of things like that. 
and because you still have ancestors and everything. And I think that if, you know, like I don't necessarily think that nonfiction needs an antagonist or a hero, but if you do need heroes, it is the descendants who, you know, they're getting together, even despite, you know, the accusations. It could have caused a long-standing multi-generational feud, but they're not. They're, you know, they're trying to work it out together. And I think they're the heroes of the stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because, you know, the last thought, and I, I know we do need to wrap up, uh, my beloved is at home texting me with, with a picture of a cocktail that he's made me <laughs> saying like, where are you? Um, <laughs> I think the last thing that's really important to what you're saying, Lauren, is um, where this happened has now been memorialized. It's a, it's part of a, a state a trail, a state-sponsored and state-maintained hiking trail. So you can literally hike up to the Killing Rock. You can see where the crime took place. You can see the vantage points. You can really reconstruct from the available forensic evidence that we have through the court testimony and transcript. You can really reconstruct what happened um, in a in a you know pretty credible way. Um, and that's that's interesting to me. In addition to that, you know, the whole town has really reinvigorated itself uh, around the economic engine that was the uh, John Fox Jr. book, Trail of the Lonesome Pine. It was one of the first books ever written to sell more than a million copies in the United States. And it really did help to codify a lot of these myths about Appalachia and mountain people. But the town now, because of what we talked about earlier, you know, the withdrawal of of coal um, and, uh, you know, not having, not knowing what to do to replace that economic engine or not having replaced it yet, even if the town knows what to do, um, tourism around Trail of the Lonesome Pine has really become the city's economic engine. They have Uh, The Trail of the Lonesome Pine Outdoor Drama, which is the longest running drama in that state. It is a state uh, sort of approved. It's like having a state bird. We have, you know, they have a state drama. The trouble is that the story as it's been told over these last hundred or so years isn't very close to the truth of what happened. And so the people, the descendants themselves have have lost control over their own narrative. And so to your point, Lauren, I think it's really smart to think about a book project or, you know, a multi-series podcast or a multi-series, you know, docudrama with the protagonist as the descendants who did not, who have chosen not to reinscribe that old stereotype of you know, feudists in Appalachia shooting each other up out of old, you know, spite and grievances from a hundred years ago. I think that's really, really interesting. Um, and I think that there's, I think there's bones there is what I think. I think there's bones. <laughs> I think it's a bones day for that story. I do too. And, and, and before we wrap up, I got to say that um, there's nobody I'd rather have do this project than you because A, I'll be first in line to get this book. I mean, I'm a huge fan of your work. Not only do I love you and you know that, and I'm going to flirt and unashamedly, but you know what a fan I am of your work as well. So I am thrilled that you were doing this. 
And I don't want you to wait another hundred episodes to come back on. <laughs> you it's got it. It's only 50, Brian. You only waited 50 episodes. <laughs> but, but also, I want to hit on one thing in your everyday life, because you're still in Appalachia. Yes. And you're an educator in Appalachia. Yes. How has it been off topic completely the last two years at a university in an area like this with, with the with the pandemic? I mean, yeah. how how badly has it affected um, education in the region? Well, I think that it has affected education, um, period, full stop. Yes. The way that we educate. Um, who has access to that education, the learning transfer that's happening between, you know, different classes. Um, I don't know that the region has been particularly, has been particularly hard hit in some ways. Now, uh, outside of education, this region has been, you know, it, it, we're doubled over in terms of pandemic related economic uh, just fallout, right? Um, but the educational institutions in these rural communities are often the economic, economic driver of those communities. So Boone, as an example, small rural community uh, doesn't have any other industry except the university. And so our, our student population comprises 20,000. I mean, we're at 20,000 students now. That's a lot of uh, economy moving with that, student, um, with that student body. So teaching has become very difficult uh, and, and is, it is cumbersome. But economically, I think that areas that are anchored by large institutions uh, like colleges and universities, um, have fared better in Appalachia than communities that don't have, that have, you know, no economic engine and aren't near a major university. And one more thing before we sign off for the night, please promise me you're not going to be handling any more snakes. <laughs> I promise nothing. You know, I, uh, I was thinking about that in, <sighs> in terms of your question, you know, like, Economy is one thing in terms of COVID, but you know where I think places like Appalachia and maybe, uh, you know, Swansea, where you're at, Lauren, have done better in terms of COVID responses that, uh, you know, a lot of us grow our own food. A lot of us um, know these old ways, these old knowledge systems. We can ride a horse. We can, you know, handle a rattlesnake. We can make uh, moonshine. So for those of us who are living close to the land, global pandemics, um, you know, maybe they're, they're a little easier for, for us to bear. Maybe, ironically, um, the very things that Appalachian uh, mountain folks are often uh, chastised for uh, is also something that, that made life a little bit easier these last two years for them. Yeah, because I couldn't grow my own food. I, I have no idea how to grow pizzas or tacos. <laughs> I could. It's easy to. I I I started growing um my um I started growing herbs and then I've start I've grown garlic. But my 
bigger success was is I used some I harvested one bulb and then I put a, a clove of that bulb back into the earth and it started growing again so I'm very oh. proud of that yeah you should be you should be very proud of that it's um it's really something special to live close to the land close oh. to the pavement <laughs> I'm a city boy <laughs> yes okay. we, we do have you. to do this again before 100 episodes is up that's right and there's always a place for you uh in the zombie apocalypse here in Appalachia Brian <laughs> I'll I'll be I'll be hunkering down there I'll bring my snuggle pillow and my cat and we'll be all good that's right bring your girlfriend too I hear she's pretty cool oh she's staying behind she's <laughs> zombie bait <laughs> throw her to the zombies while I escape human shield that's right that's right <laughs> We will talk to you soon. You got it. All right. Thanks much. Oh, Lauren, Lauren, isn't Sarah Beth great? She is. She's amazing. And, um, I really enjoyed that. And what a and story. Hope, yeah, and I hope that, I mean, um, I know that there was um, earlier this year, you know, the, um, it was sort of a docudrama called The Underground Railroad. Yes. On Amazon, and they had a companion podcast that went alongside it, and I think something like that would really work for this series. And I hope that she, you know, that this project is successful because it has legs. It has legs to be seen in a variety of different ways, and I think it's a very interesting story. It is, and it, it it's such um, such an Americana story, really. I mean, it's definitely an American story, what with all the guns and violence and Appalachia, moonshine. I mean, you guys didn't do anything. You've never done anything that no other country in the world hasn't done, but hundreds of years before you did it. Yeah, well, our moonshine is pretty good. Yes, it was. But I think that's what people forget, is that America now is going through things that we got out of our system when we were a much younger country and when we were establishing our boundaries and, you know, everything. So the issues that they see now, you know, we got, we did hundreds of years ago, and I think that America is doing, has done nothing and is not doing anything different to what, what any other country has gone through in their past. I mean, that's what people forget, is that it's such still a young country. I was going to say, you're you're trying to say that we're a baby country and we act like babies. No, I'm trying to say (laughs) that you're a teenage country going through teenage problems. Oh, teenage angst. Yes. Yeah, I I don't think, I I don't think, you know, the baby thing is absolutely true because... But I think there is a lot of conflict and there's a lot of um, angst going on in America. Well, because of that angst, we're going to be able to do at least 100 more episodes. Good. I'm glad. But I, I I do think that, you know, people do look down on America and say, you know, the the whole thing's about stupid Americans and everything. And I think that's very unkind and very untrue because there is a lot of scholarship and academia as we've witnessed tonight that comes out of America and that sort of goes unnoticed because, you know, what we see happening in happening in the country. And I think we've got to remember that we you know, we've had we've had uh, pretty 
you know, silly, angsty times in, in Britain and the United Kingdom, but, you know, that happened hundreds of years ago. I mean, you know... See, no one believes that about the Brits, though, because of your accents. Everyone thinks you're all so, like, above it. Oh, no, we've, 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 <laughs> we've gone through some stuff. We've done something, like... You read some, you read some stuff that's happened in in, in our past, and you go, oh, "That's oh that's, yeah." As oh. a history buff, I'm well aware. <laughs> so I think I think that's what we, you know, what stories like Sarah Beth's story brings, and the way that she discusses it, and the way that she deals with it, bring you know brings the point of, it reminds us, you know, just how, you know, just how much america has to offer the world you're a country that's had you you know over the past 20 years plus you're a country that's had its identity not just the not just a small part of your country or a small minority of your country but you're continually having you know the mass mass population is that the identity of your country is for them is being challenged continually but back to Sarah Beth, to be fair, I- I'd listen to Sarah Beth discuss the phone book. She's just so fascinating. She is, and her takes and everything are fascinating, very insightful. But, you know, it just, I, I don't know, I- I- I've been hearing a lot of, you know, people going about stupid Americans and stupid America, and I'm like, that's not, that's not my experience, and I don't think that's the experience of a lot of people, and I think... Your, your country's getting a bit of bad press at the moment. <laughs> We've done hilarious things, too, in our past. Well, that's not your experience, because your co-host is one of the smart Americans. I know. Brian, though, I'm pretty sure that I, I know um, that you have been challenged and, dare I say, mocked for not having a traditional education at you know, college and everything. And that's unfair. And I think if you continue doing the work that you do with your books, that a lot of universities could be knocking on your door, giving you honorary degrees. A lot of the people that say that have an undergraduate degree and everybody has an undergraduate degree. It's like so common. <laughs> yeah, people are, you know, it's, it's, it's arrogance. And I just don't like that game because I'm about learning you learn because you want to learn, not because you pay for it. That's just my opinion. Well, I, I, I mean, you're incredibly well read, and you get a lot of college, get a lot of university students who have their degrees and they have very good degrees, but they're not well read. No. The, the the diversity of the stuff that they you know that isn't there, I and mean, you can't just stick to one genre or one thing. You have to be willing and able and free yourself to read whatever you can come across. Perfect, perfect words to wrap up episode one hundred. So, Lauren, do you think you want to tell me a joke to finish episode 100? I, I don't know a joke. Oh, my goodness, you put me on the spot. I should have got a PO here to, to, to say a joke. He'd have told you a joke. All right, I'll, I'll tell one to wrap up the show. Um, because we're approaching the holiday season, so I'll tell a holiday joke. How did Darth Vader know what Luke got him for Christmas? Oh, oh, I know the answer. 
He felt his presence. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I think we should wrap this up. And in the next couple of weeks, we should dig it together and watch um, online, obviously, but watch Christmas Eve on Sesame Street so you can be traumatized again. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, absolutely. I think we need to, like, maybe sometime in December, we need to um, get everybody together. Uh, not every, you know, put an ad on Facebook and say that we'll be doing a watch along. Absolutely. And and you know what? Everybody out there listening and everybody who has listened and anybody who will listen in the future, thank you so much for helping us reach this milestone. Um, we hope you're enjoying the show. Feel free to reach out to us, write to us, send us suggestions, comments. Um, you could reach us at trans.history.rambling at gmail.com or at historyta or TA History on Twitter. Lauren, what's our Facebook? Um, it's History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. And what about um, our TikTok? History Ramblings. And Instagram is also History Ramblings. Well, on behalf of the studio audience, we hope to see you all for another 100 episodes. But for now, from Brian in Buffalo. And Lauren in Swansea. Good night. Good night. Hundredth episode edition. He was such an asshole. <laughs>